Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, your host for this episode, and today I'm speaking with Alex Aragona. You may know Alex best as the host of The Curious Task podcast. He's passionate about political theory, with particular interest in classical liberal and anarchist thought in the 18th and 19th century. His writing focuses on class and private power, and he's been published by Liberal Currents, the Center for a Stateless Society, and Adam Smith Works. Some of those articles will form the basis of our conversation today. When he's not busy with podcasting, writing, and reading, he's a partner at a marketing agency here in Ottawa. Alex, welcome for the first time as a guest on The Curious Task. Thanks, Sabine. It's a little feels a little weird uh, when you've been hosting so many episodes and you're always trying to manage the notes, manage the episode, whatever. So it's right now I have nothing in front of me and I'm just ready to have questions thrown at me. So a little different, but I think it'll be fun. Well, I have a little bit of practice now, so I think it's going to go smoothly. Um, so, Alex, as you well know, we base each episode on a question and go where the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what does classical liberalism mean to you? And what I'd love to do today is to have the audience just get to know you better as a thinker and as a classical liberal, but also just on a more personal level. Who really is the host of The Curious Task? I mean, everybody listens to you uh, every week, and you know, I really like to just get into that a little bit more. And uh, through that process, we should be able to find out what classical liberalism means to you. But before we jump into answering that question, I'd love to speak with you about the podcast and how the last over gosh, 150 episodes have been for you. I can't believe it's that many episodes, first of all. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear about that. No, I, th- I think it's been great. I mean, like, it's it's been, it, first of all, feels it's gone very fast. I mean, you know, it, this, this went from uh, an idea that we all had and talked about, uh, you know, when I first brought the idea over to the uh, ILS for this podcast and so on. And then we all worked on the format together and so on and so forth. And, you know, from that sort of brains, initial brainstorming conversation over a beer phase uh, into actually like putting things down on paper and thinking about it a little more thoroughly and then producing the first episode and onward, it's, it's been, uh, it, it's, it's been really interesting to see the time fly by. And I, I don't know what's our exact episode count now off the top of our head. Like, isn't it like a one sixty something, maybe one seventies now. I don't I, even know. <laughs> I, I forget. We, one of us should probably pull that up. But, count. Um, <laughs> but uh, over one fifty, I believe as of this recording. And, uh, no, it's been very interesting to get like a uh, hundred and fifty and hours and more, of uh, conversational content exactly the way we intended uh, out there. So um, it's a little surreal to actually see that all out there and uh, all the view counts. Um, Cause I know we started with very humble ambitions and now we see everything uh, doing what it's doing. So uh, yeah, like the overall feeling is excited. I think it's, it, it's been great and I think it's still great. So um, it, all, looking at it with a bit of amazement, but also still a lot of work to be done kind of attitude. Yeah, so we're actually at 161 episodes as of this recording. So uh, we are doing great. And we've expanded our team. Now we have uh, Eric, who's helping us a little bit with our technical production. And we still have Matt uh, in the mix. He's our um, executive producer and myself and you. And that's uh, that's the team right now. But we're small but mighty team on this podcast so i agree with you and and having heard a little bit about how the project came about um like i just want to know how did you end up the host of the curious task and why do you think it's important that the curious task even exists and what's important about this project in your opinion what keeps you doing it yeah i guess i can go back to a little more detail about why i came up with the idea and like how that all happened but um like 
Now, I I, I definitely don't want to say that when I listened to uh, podcasts at the time, by at the time, I mean like, I don't know how, I guess this was like 2019-ish, if I remember correctly. Um, You know, it's not that there was literally nothing out there uh, that I thought was good. Like, I think it'd be very stupid to say that, uh, that that's not what I'm meaning to say by my next statement here, but there just wasn't the exact type of podcast that I wanted to listen to that was out there. And that's usually where a lot of ideas start, right? It's not that you think everything's bad out there. It's not that you think everything's great. It's just that the exact sort of fit that you think you can perhaps provide with something that you're offering, you didn't find yourself. Um, So that was pretty much the first the main reason why I thought, you know, maybe we could have a podcast like XYZ ABC. You know, sometimes I thought there was um, really great guests on some podcasts out there. And I thought the honestly, the episode was just too short. I'm like, okay, so this guy, you know, talked about the thesis of this paper, the main thrust of this book. We asked a couple of high level questions and all of a sudden I look at the timeline on my iPhone or whatever. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, we're done. Well, I mean, we just kind of basic, you know, my opinion, no one's all to shorter podcasts out there, but as far as I'm concerned, I feel like we, you know, we did the front cover, back cover of the book and a couple questions and we're done. So there's things that are too short. I also think there was things that were way too long out there and not very structured and, and so on and so forth. I feel like some people had some great guests going and some podcasts um and i'll and you know and the first hour and a half ish is great and then all of a sudden uh we're missing opportunities talking about things are too casual whatever um so, you know so so that so that was there so so basically the way i wanted to sort of um go with the idea was hey like how about we get uh you know someone there to talk for a, a long time but not too long about uh, a, a very specific topic or question. That was always the, the idea of the podcast. Uh, and the question part's very important, uh, not only just the format, because I always felt that, like, again, no, I'm not saying everybody out there, there's just a lot of them like this, where the host does way too much of the talking, is what I noticed on a lot of the podcasts. And uh, sometimes questions aren't being asked. The sort of guest is sort of being told, uh, either told what, in a very odd way, is the reality, and then effectively being asked for commentary. Now, a lot of actual conversations between people work like this now, but putting that aside, <laughs> um, uh, you know, like it's sort of like the host is basically offering an opinion uh, and really kind of saying, here's the reality, what's your commentary? And it's like, well, we're not asking for color commentary from this person on the sport is the way I want to approach it. Like we actually want to ask questions and dig deep into stuff. So there's a lot of podcasts out there as well, where I felt even the way the host interacted with the guests, they were either too focused on showing off their own opinion on the one hand, or even too focused on the show itself. Like there's a lot of bouncy people out there like, well, you know, and I'm like, that's not my thing either. Uh, Can we just have a conversation about economics, politics, philosophy, and other topics, as we always say in the intro, it's a very honest intro, and uh, just see where the conversation takes us. So, of course, there's a structure and so on, but but that's really it. You know, it's a, it's a long, that's a lot of me talking uh, to get to a simple answer of if you listen to the intro of the podcast, that's really what we set out to do and what I um, thought of doing. But that was sort of my inspiration is just sort of hit a happy medium on a couple of things that I wasn't satisfied with when I listen to other podcasts. And as you know, Sabine, I mean, we don't need to go through every detail, but when I came to the Institute for liberal studies, I always thought of this like as like a sort of like a movie studio metaphor, like, you know, I'm a director or like, you know, writer director and I have an idea, but I need a movie studio kind of thing to help with some of the producing and publishing and so on. And that's the kind of metaphor I pitched to Matt. And then he said, yeah, actually, that is a really good idea. Like if we think of it like that. And and, and from there, we all worked on it together to finesse some ideas. Um, I I knew that a four hour podcast was too long, but I was even thinking somewhere hour, hour and a half. 
excuse me, hour and a half to two hours, maybe even more. And we finessed that down. Uh, we thought of the name together, uh, the curious task, uh, actually thought of how the thing should be format. All that great stuff sort of came when, as many great ideas do, they it, they got finessed as as you talk with other people who are also very passionate about the project. So uh, hope that wasn't too much of a blab fest, but I thought that was a little bit fun extra background there. But all, all that to say, to answer your main question, um, one of your main questions there, which is that the idea for the podcast was really to hit a couple happy mediums I didn't think were being hit. Um, as far as how I became the host, I didn't actually want to be the host. I, I really didn't. I thought it would be, I just kind of really did come with the idea to the the Institute for Liberal Studies. And I said, wouldn't it be great if something like this existed? And through conversation, Matt just said, this is all great, but why don't you host it? I mean, you have an idea in your head as, as we're going along here. And and, uh, you know, your voice isn't too bad. And also, I think you enjoy talking about this stuff. So why don't you give that a shot? Um, and that's, I kind of fell into it that way. I, I really didn't want to be the host to start. So you can kind of hear that a bit in my voice for the first couple episodes. And then it kind of hits its stride. So, um, yeah, the host thing was also a mistake there. I know you asked a couple of different questions at the same time, but I think that was the two main things. Yeah, we, we do get some comments about people saying they like your voice. So that's true. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. I mean, obviously, no one hears their own voice in their head the same way other people do. So I have to trust everyone else. Your voice for the radio, Alex. Yeah. If if you if you if you enjoy it, that's great to be. And if other people listen to you, that's awesome too. Thanks. Um. Uh. So is that overall like what you hope people get out of each episode? It's just like a conversation, not just not really a debate per se. You just want to hear people have a conversation about an interesting topic, perhaps even a debate. I mean, that's possible as well, but. You know, what are you trying at the end of the day in like just a few words? What is it that you hope people get out of each episode? Hey, I, I hate, um, actually, I don't hate. It's just, a, it, it is cliche to use a cliche, but I don't really hate to use it. But the food for thought comes to mind. And I mean that seriously. Mm-hmm. I think um, uh, back to sort of what I was saying before um, about some of the things that I think are flaws in actual some podcasts. And I should say, actually, quick aside for a sec if someone's idea of a podcast is to say hey we're gonna have a sing-songy bounce around time and discuss a couple things superficially and just give you a quick hit of it give you a quick hit of our ideas and get in and get out 10 minutes later if they present it that way and then someone listens and that's what they get out of it there's no complaints but my issue has always been frankly things that are either uh describing themselves as conversations uh not being really so as i've said before or things that are described as sort of a longer format exploration uh really being sort of a, you know, a, maybe a bit of that, but really just a way to people to grandstand and get ratings and, you know, get ads and like really pump up the base of whatever people mm-hmm. they're serving. Like, so, so, um, so, so all that to say, I just wanted to do that quick aside to say, if somebody presents a podcast a certain way, that isn't what I like, but that's what they give people. That's great. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I felt that a lot of people that were saying that they wanted to give people food for thought were really just shoving uh, food down people's throat. What I would like to do metaphorically continuing down this path that I've started uh, as we go along here is like really give now. people. Yeah, me too. Uh, so we'll, we'll solve that quick after the, this, this recording. Um, but um what I really do hope people get is like a, a like a basically a buffet of ideas to look at when they zoom in and look at all the episodes. And just like at a buffet, you're not going to like everything. You're not going to agree with every crouton that might be in the salad. Fine, whatever. But the point is, is that I really want these out there so people uh, can really, number one, hear what they are for what they are, which is a nice conversation, which I think is more of that 
out there is important, but then to really be left with food for thought, not that the people in the conversation swayed them a certain way because that was clearly what they wanted to do. Obviously, all our guests uh, have their own opinion on things. That's why they've been published with a certain either um, investigation that also had an opinion at the end or straight up commentary on something. Um, That's fine. But I hope people like I you know, I don't, I, I'm always hesitant to judge and say this is what I've achieved, but what I hope we've achieved is really a tone and approach and a style that's, hey, this is what this person says, this is what this is about, this is what they think or what they've studied or what they've discovered, and here you go. I hope you can add this to your mental buffet and your own stuff. You know, if there's bad or stuff you disagree with, uh, think about why, discard that, take some of the good and use that to sort of shape your own own opinions. That's really been the whole idea is really give people food for thought, not shove a certain type of ice cream down their throat. Um, and, and that's sort of um, another thing is sort of where that's kind of like in a funny way how the end of each episode sort of came to be where we ask about you know, if I ask every guest if, if there's anything, you know, of all the stuff we talked about, if anything, what do you want people to take away from this? That was just sort of like an impromptu accident in, in the first episode. I didn't know how to get out of it. We talked about all this stuff and I was sort of like, okay, like, you know, this is all great. But I mean, and it'd be unfair to ask someone to summarize everything they talked about because they just finished talking about it. So it's like, so at the end of the day, what are we really getting at here? What do you want to leave people with? And that's really been the spirit of the show. I hope people feel that way. Um, is that they've been left with something to think about. Maybe they have been left with something that they say, I agree with everything here. Maybe they've been left something left with something that they say, I disagree with everything here, but at least they've been left with something. They haven't been told something. And I think that's very important. And I, and I really hope that's sort of what we have in our 160, whatever episodes at this point is just a bunch of different foods for thought for people uh, to be left with. And that's, that's, that's always been what I hope people get out of it. And always the, the point of the whole thing. It's, it's really does come down to sort of that John Stewart million thing and on Liberty where it's talking about that. If, Sometimes it's not just the two people involved or three or four or whatever uh, in a civil conversation that would lose out um, if the conversation wasn't had. Sometimes the audience and the greater quote-unquote public or other listeners or third parties, they're also losing out too. Conversations and actually doing them civilly and intelligently have positive externalities. So I think that's what we're trying to do, create the most positive externalities as possible, I guess, while talking to people. So a fun question to round out this part of the conversation. Tell me what your favorite memory has been of the podcast from the past three years of doing it. That's tough. I mean, like, I'm not going to like say like, Oh, like, you know, one of my favorite memories is talking with X, Y, or Z person. Um, because I think I truly feel that each of our episodes has been like a favorite of mine because otherwise we wouldn't do them. And I mean, that's another thing we always talk about behind the scenes, right? Is like, we do we want to do this or do we want to do that? I, we haven't done one episode where it's like, ah, we'd rather not do this, but let's get it over with. That has never happened. So every episode is truly a favorite. It's been interesting. I've been curious on the curious task as, as much as the, the uh, audience has as well. So I'm, I, I can't say a favorite moment um, is like, you know, this episode or when someone said this, I, I have a lot of, um, you know, of course we moved to mostly the, uh, virtual zoom format, uh, when the pandemic hit, which has been great as far as like being able to talk to different guests. We didn't think, uh, we might be able to get a hold of because 
you might recall that our original idea is we would do some Zoom, but a lot of also in person if we could hit up conferences and mm-hmm. at ILS events, <laughs> talk with some professors and so on. Um, so when we were doing a lot of in-person stuff, sorry, I have a lot of favorite memories from that. Like uh, our first episode, for instance, uh, we had all the equipment we needed for audio, but I guess we forgot that you actually had to put this stuff in places. So I remember you had a flipped over recycle bin and you were sitting on a milk crate <laughs> looking at the audio uh, interface software and the the uh, the um, and the audio interface software was off to or the hardware I should say was off to the side and we had like the microphone cables going under poor Nigel Ashford's leg and I just told him not to kick it and then the lawnmower <laughs> kept going by outside like stuff like that the, the the janky stuff starting out was is his pretty favorite as far as like um you know this sort of uh, you know child of the podcast if you will metaphorically growing up so that's yeah. one thing to highlight but that's not my only favorite memory like the, all the episodes are, are, are my yeah, favorite but but those are key thanks, how the project started right special thanks to nigel for like sticking with us through our growing pains there <laughs> yeah absolutely no that was uh that, that, a great conversation but definitely the, the setting around it was a little amateur hour but uh but still worked out great episode know. though first episode yeah, no, everybody ab- if you want to go back yeah, and no. listen to it it was great to have nigel so actually he talked about how he defines classical liberalism in that episode and now I'm going to ask you, uh, can you tell me how you would define classical liberalism uh, before I move on and tackle some more specific thoughts you have about it? Mm-hmm. My answer to this might be um, a, a, sound quite broad, but because that's it really is like that is how I view uh, classical liberalism. So like at the at the end of the day, I, I don't view when I think of classical liberalism and you know, everything that's packed into whatever that term means. And there are a lot of different people who, you know, who define it differently and that, that's fine. But when I look at classical liberalism, I really think of like, you know, core foundational pillars, like, you know, in the Nigel Ashford episode, we, we covered some of those and so on and so forth. But I sometimes even take like a broader look at what classical liberalism and frankly, like some just like straight up liberalism was kind of in the, in the 1700s and, and 1800s. And, and really, it's just some basic uh, tendencies and core pillars of thinking. And those things uh, help you approach other things and then come to conclusions. So for example, like I don't think classical liberalism is this idea about a tax policy or what is the classical liberal answer to anything. I'm just off the top of my head, like firearms control. Like what, like you can get to those conclusions like th- through a, cla- a discussion with other classical liberals and there are some like, you know, blogs and papers out there that, like, you know, the classical liberal answer to this. I'm not saying you can't get there, but you know, I don't go there when I think of it often. I think I'm always thinking back to the start, which is like, what are sort of the fundamental ways um, one looks at the world if they say they have these, you know, broadest, broadly speaking, liberal values at their core. Um, so when I think of that it, uh, classical liberalism, um, it really does, or liberalism more broadly to say, um, like I'm really thinking of like some broad fundamentals. And those fundamentals pretty much are, Taking the equality uh, of human beings seriously, like the idea that there is nothing at all uh, about anyone's differences as far as like, you know, where they're from culturally and so on and so forth, that therefore creates a situation where people need to think that they are deserving of a different level of dignity or respect fundamentally, obviously 
everyone in life then goes off and makes their own choices and so on and so forth. So we all choose to respect people differently and other people are deserving of more respect than others. But I, I mean sort of dignity and, and, and respect in, in a different way here. As human beings, what do we owe each other? There is a base level of dignity and respect. And in my view, uh, a way of looking at other people that suggests that they are completely equal, that that is that, that we are that we owe to each other. So that, that's one fundamental pillar. Um, be, being uh, extremely skeptical of uh, power and authority is is another one of those pillars, um, which kind of follows from that equal you know dignity and, and respect process. It's a natural step forward to basically say, um, you know, well, you know, hey, if if you know if, if I don't have a right to do X, Y, and Z, maybe you don't have a right to rule. You know, like and that that that's a sort of a seed that sort of hopefully goes further with a lot of people too. And then um, without getting too far into it, I'll just sum it up by saying something like the rule of law. I, th- I think like when people think of what the rule of law is, um, they think very specific things. And some people branch out into this whole idea of law and order actually, which is odd to me. But but, but so so just to sum it up, I'll say the best way to summarize the rule of law, but in a, in a very, again, broad, fundamental way that says like rule of rules and law and organization in society not rule by men or women or other people if you know we're all going to get together in a small community of 100 people let's say and then we all voluntarily choose to like abide by you know certain things like you know we don't dump our trash in that lake over there you know this is a rule we all follow nobody should go dump the trash in the lake i got the fundamental sense like to me that's a kind of a rule of law thing i would prefer a different term for other reasons which i go into won't get into now but that's sort of um at a, at a base level uh, you know, a good way to summarize it without getting into another two hours of, of that. So um, all that to say, you know, like taking the equality of being human beings and their dignity seriously, um, the rule of law point I just made, and then also being extremely skeptical of power and authority is like, to me, what, what the core of liberalism is. I, I think um, the type of anarchist thought that you then find in like the uh, 1800s and onward is really just sort of an... And, and in many ways, not in all ways, and in not all traditions in anarchism, but generally speaking, sort of an offshoot and a growth of these fundamental, let's call them liberal uh, tendencies. Um, I also, by my own value judgment, I also think people that then move to anarchism are people that take this type of liberalism extremely seriously. Not to say there's people that are unserious that aren't anarchists, but that's just my value judgment. So that's all that to say that's how i broadly define liberalism when i think about it and you get conclusions from there and that's also how i think it connects up to anarchism which i won't get into now you might have questions about that later but uh not sure if that answers your question but that that is really how i think of liberalism as far as i'm concerned um and 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 why this project and a place like the institute for liberal studies uh is important to me other people have different reasons and other missions and other projects that they want to do and things that matter to them they might have a different definition than me but what brings me to the table if at all when the word liberal is thrown in the air it's the stuff i just talked about Mm -hmm. and do you think that we can build sort of good alliances within the movement uh, or outside of the movement, because you've written a lot about alliance building within libertarianism as a political movement and the effects that might have on classical liberalism. So I, I kind of want to get your thoughts on whether or not, what, uh, what kind of alliance do you think might actually work? 
I, I think... Um, or do we even need them? <laughs> no, I, I guess no, we should start there, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, do, do we need alliances? I think people need to cooperate with each other to get anything done just as like a basic point. I mean, sounds it's a truism, yeah. But I think it's very important to, to say that. Um, but without getting into too many specifics about a specific pocket of people or a specific policy adjustment or a specific long-term vision or, or whatever, all that I'll, all that I'll say is that my thoughts on this can be summarized with almost like the title that I have uh, on an article that I had written for Liberal Currents, and um, it, it, which is which goes, it's important to know what you stand for without forgetting why you stand for it. And and that article happened to be about fusionism, but that that really does the whole vibe in that article really does summarize the way I think about alliances and alliance building and who we join hands with, if anybody. Um, you know, when we're trying to achieve certain goals, whether that's a certain goal of developing a podcast and doing that project and having those conversations, um, or it's a specific policy adjustment in the sort of narrow day-to-day political sphere where people are trying to get together to affect an actual legislative change, or it's uh, who is in what intellectual circles and when, uh, when sort of even the broadest sense of strategy and what are we doing here and what would we like to achieve in the future and what's the long-term vision for anybody kind of stuff. No, no matter what you're doing, narrow day-to-day politics or broader sort of intellectual sphere stuff, radical organizing, whatever, I think people need to ally with other people after sort of their own in-group, if you will, or like the, the group that one could most safely say is under X, Y, and Z label. Uh, once that's sort of been identified, you say, yeah, we're all X, right? I think that people should ally with each other uh, to sort of um, achieve certain things if it happens to be in, you know, one or two or three groups' interests to achieve something, fine. Um, but, you know, making an alliance uh, and, and working together with someone uh, is, is not tethering yourself to them, especially if you're not on the same page about every issue. And I think where a lot of people get caught up when it comes to alliance building, uh, generally speaking, or, um, you know, trying to work together to achieve certain goals is this idea that everyone needs to be uh, find this sort of common ground of politeness where it's sort of like, OK, we'll take the good stuff about what we agree on. Um, and basically focus on that. And it's not that we just set aside the stuff we might disagree on or that are fundamental differences. And for instance, how we identify or how we believe it's not that we just de-emphasize them for time being. It's sort of like we don't bring them up. That's another route you could go. Um, when you're, when you're working on projects with people, I think there was a lot of that in fusionism and other authors. And I've cited them in the article that I mentioned before on liberal currents sort of said that fusionism was built on this sort of like politeness, quote unquote, uh, between gentlemen. And, and that's the kind of stuff that I think should be avoided. I think that, you know, we, alliances are necessary people need to work together to get things done and sometimes you know you might find yourself with strange bedfellows on certain issues um and sometimes even that's a point of pride for people in the uh, broader uh what we could call american libertarian movement right they make self-deprecating jokes about it you know you wake up one day to somebody who doesn't know you you sound like a socialist and the next day other people are accusing you of being a fascist and uh, i don't understand like what what the hell are you kind of thing and then people say well i'm on the side of liberty or whatever you know is, is the fun meme and answer but there's some truth to that whole thing which is that you know uh it's good to work with people it's agree and disagree with whoever you you need to to get things done but you, you shouldn't be tethering yourself to people and having any part of that tethering fashion or influence or aggravate 
or mitigate your core beliefs. The only person that should be in charge of that are, well, number one, yourself as an individual, but if you have a bunch of people in a room that think they got classical liberalism down and they have a bunch of conferences and figure that out, good for them, but that's what classical liberalism then should be to those people. If they want to ally from other pe- with other people to achieve a certain thing on a certain project, great, but we don't therefore go and revisit the table on what we mean as anything, anarchism, classical liberalism, or whatever, because we are in the middle of or trying to ally with other people and get other things done. And some, but lots of people listening to this might say, well, nobody really does that. I, I, I would pose um, that it has been done. Fusionism had a lot of that in that. And people do do it even subconsciously if they don't realize they are doing that. Um, even, you know, and, and getting away from politics for a second, all of us are familiar with this in a social situation too. That's why it translates itself into bigger group and, you know, ways of thinking and so on. You know, like how many people would say, you know, oh, if someone ever said X, Y, and Z in front of me, I would definitely call them out. And then all of a sudden the person that says that um, happens to be your friend that you never thought would say that. And then all of a sudden you're thinking like, you know, do I call them out? Do I not? You know, I'm kind of on the side of absolutely who cares at that point, but you know, life's complicated, right? So that sort of seed of that sort of um, confusion of politeness and do we sacrifice this relationship? Will it aggravate it? Will it mitigate what's more important, this relationship or your principle? All that kind of stuff translates to the larger group level. So when it comes to alliance building, I think at the end of the day, yes, alliances are necessary to answer your question directly. I think they should be done in the, uh, you know, made with other folks, uh, you know, within different pockets of the broader libertarian movement, if you will. And also the broader libertarian movement should always look externally and see who might agree with stuff and can achieve and bring us closer to very broadly speaking, libertarian goals. Uh, but never at the, uh, cost uh, of admission that has to do with being polite for uh, with other people forgetting where you come from uh you know and saying you stand for something and forgetting why you really stand for it you know um all people that are serious about being liberals in the broadest sense in my view um should always remember at core why they are liberals uh not getting caught up in a certain policy agreement or whatever and how how they they're going to rock the boat with you know some of the relationships they have or whatever so i'm not really sure if that answered the question it was very broad but but that is truly what i think right it's like it's it's important to know what you stand for and keep standing for it but don't forget why you stand for it that's pretty much the summary so one thing I know you are very concerned about and that you've written about extensively is state capitalism. Um, what is it? What is that? At the, from the ground up, at a, you know, when you, on the one hand you think of um, free markets. I'm not going to use the word capitalism for a second, but it will come back in. Um, if we talk about, you know, tr- you know people at, at, the, at the base level, people having their own possessions basically and are, are – uh, you know, free to voluntarily do their own projects, exchange things, etc. And like, and if we stretch that definition even wider, uh, like when we talk about markets, you know, the marketplace for ideas and so on and so forth. Like in the broadest sense, when we think about what we mean by by uh, markets, um, is at play. Um, in the in the purest sense, if anything sort of impedes on that, it ceases to be. Uh, free market on principle, right? So if, for instance, and all libertarians can agree with this, um, the the state comes in and says, you know what, you can't now, for example, um, practice, you know, I don't know, like 
braid this person's hair without a license. That's a nice favor one, right? So it's like, you know, if the state kind of then says that and they say, and maybe they don't outright ban it. Maybe they then say, no, no, you can, but then now you need this, you know, you need this kind of license and you need this kind of training and so on and so forth. And lots of libertarians are great about talking how that harms people, how it locks people out of market, whatever, and so on and so forth. Um, so, so all libertarians will accept that there are like free market ideals. And then there's also basically, you know, of course, some, some state involvement, uh, and, and impedance in the economy and so on and so forth. But where I diverge and why I'm very interested in this idea, like of basically what we can call what we live with now, state capitalism, is that a lot of people then conclude, um, yes, there's a lot of state involvement in our lives, but we are largely quote unquote capitalist or quote unquote uh, free market countries. Um, you know, capitalism's great. There's a lot of warts on its face, but, 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 you know, we should accept capitalism like warts and all versus like another different sort of system. I, I take a different view on that. I don't think what we have underneath at the core of the way our societies and economies are running is basically a, like a really good system at its core that just has a bunch of different interruptions and warts on it that sort of make it noisy and, and render sort of less than ideal results. And then the whole idea is we need to, you know, walk back some trajectories or reset them and then we're on the right track. Uh, when I look at everything, what I look at is basically um, a, a situation where we have something unto itself. State capitalism is a system. It's where we have sort of a, uh, a, you know, an economy that's based on private ownership of capital, sure. But the state is not only an active participant in that process, but as far as regulation, but is also an active participant in many other things. Like, for instance, uh, subsidizing things, uh, choosing winners and losers in industry, um, you know, saying that great now that we've extorted all this taxation from people, um, this investment over here is not worth the time for the next four years, but this one is over here. Um, you know, there's also a lot of, th there's a great two volume, uh, set of books by a Morton J Horowitz called the transformation of American law in which he talks about sort of this hidden area. A lot of people don't think about And I think this is true, especially among libertarians, because it's not legislative and constitutional specifically. It's how common law evolved. And you see how within our systems, um, you know, you, you had sort of common law and judges making a lot of decisions on what you know for instance property rights means throughout the 1800s who's at fault in a tort um so on and so forth you know if, if you own a piece of property how much can you disturb your neighbor all these subtle things ultimately he concludes came out very much in favor not of private citizens and the rule of law but very much people in the commercial class so when you look at what the government's doing a lot of laws that aren't legislative but things like corporate law and uh you know commercial law and common law and so on and so forth i think what you actually have is like a system unto itself it's not the beautiful ideal of free markets with some interruptions and free markets warts and all uh, that need to sort of be fixed a little bit. What you have is sort of this the system unto itself called state capitalism. And why I kind of write about it, refer to it a certain way, and think about it in that way is because I think in order to truly assess whatever problems we're looking at in the world, because there's a lot to look at, uh, you know, in, in the Western world, um, that we we really need to understand what we're living in and under as sort of a system unto itself with its own features, its own costs and its own way of operating, uh, not just, a, a you know, a great system and an ideal system that's being a, a, an ideal system of property rights and trade that's being impeded by, you know, the state on Monday and maybe like, you know, some radical leftists or something on Tuesday. Uh, what we, what we really have, 
um, is is sort of uh, a political, uh, you know, like a political economy that is sort of its own thing and running a certain way. So that's why I write about it as state capitalism. And that's what I think of it as is that we're sort of assessing a system unto itself. Uh, and in my mind, it's not, you know, we don't live in a, a free or freed market society kind of thing. Um, you know, I'm, I am quite concerned with, with state capitalism, um, not only because one of the things I want to describe to people, in my articles is this is its own thing that needs to be understood a certain way. It's its own political economy. Uh, so that's important, but it's also important because, if that's what it is, that's what we live under. So it's most of the problems, if there are, when it comes to certain injustices are caused by by that system. So that's why I write about it and that's why I'm concerned about it because that's what we're living with. Okay, I think that's a really good answer to sort of end our first part on. Um, and then I want to come back and talk a little bit more about this after the break. Uh, but now that we've gotten the definition of state capitalism out of the way, uh, we can dive a little bit more into it and we'll do that in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, and I'm speaking with Alex Aragona, your usual host. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Vincent Geloso, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Okay. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Alex Aragona. Um, before the break, you spoke with us a little bit about state capitalism. And um, on that same note, I wanted to ask... As you point out in your writing, there's a lot of concern in classical liberal thinking about rent-seeking and corruption, but you think more attention could be paid to underlying issues. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, like, so, um, like, if if state capitalism is a structure and it's, and it's sort of a... Um, it's a system unto itself, as I said. Like, if we basically jump off everything I was just talking about before we went to break there, um, then... Of course, there's going to be a lot of quick hit, easy issues that we can talk about on the very surface of everything that are total like day to day injustices. Like, for instance, you know, I'll go back to the hair braiding example, the, the, the very fact that there are some legal jurisdictions out there that tell someone that they can't uh, make some side money or even, you know, do their full time job out of their house by braiding people's hair. Putting aside that's ridiculous that the government will tell, for example, someone who's like a cultural heritage of this, you know, passed down from multiple, uh, you know, generations. And now it's like you can't do it because you live in like Idaho or something. But anyway, um, you know, putting that aside for a second, the the the, ver- the very idea, obviously, right on the surface that the state can come in and basically say you need a license to braid hair, pay us money. We're also going to elect a bureau of supervisors or have some sort of whatever industry folks like other uh, hair specialists also, you know, choose how many licensees there are. Like, you know, there's there's obviously like these surface issues that are important. I, uh, they're important when it comes to people's freedom. They're important to pe- when it comes to people in a truly free market sense, choosing who they associate with, uh, who they trade with, uh, who they live their lives with, and how they make their living. Like these, I'm not downplaying and saying these issues aren't important. However, sometimes I do think that a lot of people who would call themselves libertarians are very much focused on these issues as the issues, and sometimes we don't get to very structural th- pol- political economic things. Um, like, for example... Uh, 
free trade. Um, I also have an article about this on, up at Liberal Currents, but basically um, a, a lot of um, goods that go back and forth between many countries right now are uh, done so um, under sort of jurisdictions and regulations that often are called free trade by libertarians. Um, I shouldn't say by libertarians, let me correct that, by they're just called free trade agreements. And a lot of libertarians, what I mean to say, will basically say this is overall great. We're trending in the right direction. We are seeing more free trade agreements, you know, be, you know, be, be signed, you know, um, you know. Uh, at, at a certain time or whatever when it's happy, especially in the 90s, for example. So, like, you know, this was looked at as a trend in the right direction. Now, putting aside uh, whether it's good for, quote-unquote, nations to trade with each other for a second, um, when it comes to sort of uh, structural issues, if we're being serious about our principles, do should we actually... Let's just stop for a second and ask if we should be calling some of these agreements free trade agreements. When you often look at these, for example, they have to be thousands of pages of doc of documentation that you need to be like a, a very specific legal profession to professional to look at a lot of economists who talk about x y and z free trade agreement have not themselves gone through all this stuff because it's not their profession so that's just a fact as well and if anyone's asking where i'm citing that source from it's i've asked some and they've admitted to not going through it so that's a different discussion for a different day and that's that's okay because you ultimately have to be a legal specialist to go through this stuff and understand it but already right there then and there when it comes to the very basic idea that because i live in canada should i be able to ship something to someone in indonesia for instance and then they give me money for whatever i'm shipping them this kind of stuff is not regulated by the ideal of free trade it's regulated by um, both state to state uh, agreements and also other world organizations like you know the World Trade Organization, so on and so forth, that oversee things uh, or are act as forums for states to get together and figure out what's going on with trade in the world. Now, to me, that's not free trade. When I line up to go across the border in the United States, okay, and a uh, vehicle that's part of a huge uh, corporation in 18 wheeler flies by me in a priority lane with a truckload of bananas on it. And I'm trying to cross the American border with one banana and I'm asked to throw it out because of, now there are a lot of issues here. I'm being silly because sometimes it actually has to do with, you shouldn't bring different species of food or like animals across the border and stuff. But putting that aside for a second, I, you know, the, the, that sort of visual, I hope paints the picture of like, there are different classes of people and different, uh, different organizations in society. They're allowed to do some things and not others. Uh, that's not free trade to me, even if cargo is going across a border and, you know, Forbes and a lot of other, uh, libertarian organizations do enjoy their drone shots of cargo ships and talking about free trade. Uh, visually speaking, when I look at that from a structural perspective, I don't see, oh, great, cargo's moving. I mean, good, yeah, it's moving, but under what uh, regime, why, and so on. Is it better that we live um, in Canada, for example, we, as <laughs> you and I, because, you know, everybody's dealing with their own different problems in different countries. Is it better that you and I, Sabine, live in a country where cargo is moving back and forth between Canada than us, and as opposed to us locking ourselves down like a state communist Soviet Union and trying to, you know, grow our own bananas here in greenhouses and be silly economically as a nation? Well, well of course, I mean, that's better. But, but we don't, just because we're not USSR state communist does not mean, therefore, that we are, again, capitalism, uh, I should say free markets, but like just a bit of warts on their face. There are other structural things that are happening here that create winners, losers, 
fortunes, have some people uh, more able to hold on to property, get more property, for example, and so on and so forth, uh, get more riches, get more wealth, uh, and others not, that aren't based on their gumption and entrepreneurial spirit. There's a lot of things going on, especially in trade in the commercial sphere, that are structural. Another example is Canadian dairy farmers. Um, there's literally a supply control regime there. You know, that's another example and so on and so forth. The last example I'll offer about something structural is uh, sort of space exploration. Um, This is, again, looked at as sort of, yeah, you know, NASA existed. But now we have a bunch of private companies um, launching rockets. You know, this shows that, uh, you know, the private industry is better than sort of like, you know, NASA and so on and so forth or public, you know, public works uh, to do things like technological innovation, space exploration, good, libertarian, rin, checkmark. I mean, is is it really? I mean, you know, would these companies exist without billions of dollars of Pentagon funding, uh, which is, and by, by Pentagon funding, we mean taxation funneled through the defense system back into places like SpaceX and now Blue Origin and so on and so forth. Um, you know, someone might, really quickly point out that if Mark Zuckerberg pays Elon Musk at SpaceX to put a Facebook satellite into space, that's, you know, private organizations doing their things. But, you know, um, is but is the whole company based on putting Facebook satellites into space? Absolutely not. Um, so, so, And I've written an article about that as well that's uh, being hosted by Liberal Currents right now about really um, how the entire air back in the early 1900s and space industry for the course of the 20th century was very much about was very much a perfect illustration of state capitalism whereas you you basically had um private industry uh in many ways either directly employed by or in other ways indirectly through funding and sort of government mandates and needs at the time like for instance in purchasing war materials um basically like you know the state directing and guiding the economy in very specific ways where you could only at that point get um sort of air uh innovation and then later space innovation um and then a lot of industrialists at the time and it was more honest days actually back then propaganda was called propaganda and also industrialists spoke quite openly they're on record in the 30s and 40s saying none of this would have happened unless the state took an active role we would not have x y and z technology unless the state took an active role and so on and so forth is it good we have some of these things that's a separate question that that that's where people's brain really needs to you know do some serious noodling. Um, but the the very fact is that when we talk about the structural issues that you pointed to and you know the structure of the economy, um, that's the kind of stuff I mean. Let's not just call free trade agreements because they're called uh, you know free trade agreements free trade. Let's actually look at what's really going on there politically and economic speaking. And just because someone at a large corporation does something, does it mean that this is a hero entrepreneur of the free market? Or has Elon Musk just made his living off a lot of government subsidy, a lot of state uh, capitalism, a lot, a lot of great corporate law trickery? I mean, it, it's, it's great to exist and moving things around on spreadsheets, you know, which is a result of corporate law as it evolved for a while. So that's the kind of things I mean. I'm, some issues are cut and dry. People shouldn't need a license to braid hair. Done. Other issues require a little bit more structural discussion and uh, can't just be looked at as private versus public or entrepreneurial versus government spending. There's a lot of structural things that need to be looked at underneath a lot of these issues, and that's sort of what I mean. And that is a very broad brush I'm painting, but when you say what do I mean to look at that, that I'm concerned in my writing about actually looking at some of the, the structural issues and not stay at the superficial level, that's the kind of thing that I think is very important. So you're basically reminding listeners that if something looks like it's a free market thing, that there usually is some underlying 
thing that you can still rage against the machine on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, yeah, I sure I wouldn't put it exactly that way, but that is absolutely one thing, right? I mean, like, again, like, you know, all the cliches apply, like the world's not perfect as I, I, I use the example myself. Is it better that we're, we're Canada right now and we have the kind of political economy we do and we're not the Soviet Union? Well, absolutely. I don't want to live in a dungeon with limited social services. Like I, I don't want to, you know, so obviously it's better to be in Canada than, than the uh, Soviet Union. But does that mean therefore that when you look at Canada or the United States as political economy, that we, we just have like great stuff just with a couple people causing problems in Ottawa or Washington, D.C. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. If you're being serious about serious free market principles and serious liberal principles, I mean, we just talked about economics a lot. There's also a lot of social issues that one could get into as well. Um, then, then you know, I, th- I think there are some really foundational structural problems with a lot of what's going on in a Western political economy. It's not just, you know, this tax rate or that legislation or this government subsidy. There's a lot of broader issues at play there. So then what do you think are some of the possible solutions as far as the powerful continuing to become more powerful and those left behind continue to get pushed even further into the margins? And you point this out in one of your essays, but like, what do you do about it? There are both like a, so I I think it's actually a really great question at this point because uh, I, it ties into something I was hoping to actually add on to my last point, um, which is that it's important to also zoom out and talk about strategic and tactical. A lot of people, and I've been accused of this, um, you know, when you talk about the sort of broader structural stuff, uh, they automatically assume that if there's a small tactical win at some point, a tax rate does go down or a license bureau does go up in smoke or Stephen Harper finally gets rid of the wheat control boards in Canada that like someone like me is going to basically say, oh, but you know, that's not structural change. Who cares? So there, I want to say, you know, before I answer your your question, um, but long-term thinking, I guess, is that. Um, tactical wins are also very important too. Small changes in the current term can make huge differences in people's lives and that matter. Not every little thing that happens when it comes to the cause of freedom, um, you know, is going to set us on course for a beautiful anarchist utopia that I might want in 250 years. But, you know, getting rid of a license bureau, lowering a taxes, even lowering a fee on a license uh, can, can do a lot for one individual today for their freedom and the kind of conditions that they live under. Uh, certain police reform things can do a lot for people in certain communities. Does that mean, for example, when it comes to certain police issues, do we, do, do, I'm not, I'm talking about the royal we now, not you and I, do, do we want the long-term end to be, oh, just reform and not quote-unquote revolution? That's sort of like a, a little slogan people throw around a lot. That, that's a separate question. Um, there's a lot of great things to discuss in the long term, but the short term should also be discussed and taken seriously too. So nothing I've just said, and I think as well, other people that are interested in kind of more radical thinking should also not, you know, should, should not distract from the fact that yes, long-term visions are important and structural change might be necessary. Some things might need to be destroyed. Some things might be torn down, whatever. But the point is, is that there are also things uh, in the present, as far as smaller tactics and smaller wins that are still worth it, just because there isn't huge structural change does not mean that smaller wins don't make a huge difference in people's lives. So that's one thing. From a long-term perspective, though, some things do need to be completely destroyed or dismantled. Um, I'm not going to get into exactly why now, which is a little unfair. But you know, f- for instance, like um, 
you know, like, for instance, like the, the regime of corporate law, which has nothing to do with legislation. It has to do with things like, again, I'll point people to the book, Transformation American Law, two volumes, Morton J. Horowitz, really great two volume set. A lot of the kind of way that, for instance, companies in the commercial class are uh, interact with law, have rules among themselves, uh, and so on and so forth. That's not stuff that came out of legislation or natural free market interaction. A lot of that is judge-made law. A lot of that is, you know, at the time, um, you know, uh, the, the business and commercial class throughout the 1800s, for, for ex- just one example, lobbying uh, certain like, you know, common law judges and so on and bringing arguments. Of course, they would have the time and the money and the resources to do it, um, you know, for, for certain sort of allowances in the law. Um, you know, you know, we live with a lot of things that uh, we shouldn't just take for granted. You know, corporations, for example, business corporations uh, are not just big business. It's not just me and you selling something on the street and all of a sudden we're millionaires and now we're corporations. There's a lot going on in corporate law, for instance, that I think if you want a free market um, where people are actually fully responsible uh, to a full liability for both um, the rewards that they get, but also the losses that they should take and the responsibility that they should have if something, you know, drops on someone's head or, uh, or, or, you know, they violate a contract, stuff like that needs to be, you know, probably done, done away with, but that stuff doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, in the long term, serious structural changes are needed to the way the state operates. And I'm ultimately an anarchist. So that needs to, at the end of the day, at some point, states ought to be done away with. Um, you know, there's that kind of thing. Things like corporate law shouldn't exist. Intellectual property. There's another great discussion, you know, stuff like that. There's a lot of things that just need to be done away with that cannot be reformed. But by the same token, that doesn't mean we don't think that there's not small things we can do in the meantime. So we're going to get to anarchism in a little bit. But before we get there, I do want to talk to you. Oh, we're going to leave Canada, the United States for a little bit, and we're going to travel to space. Uh, in one of your articles, you criticize the amount of emphasis people put on successes of space entrepreneurs. Um, but I don't want to talk about that specifically. Um, it seems to be, to me, to be an example of your concern about the mixing of public-private interests. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Yeah, that's the actually the article I was referring to before. So that's um that's that's up on liberal liberal currents. I think that's the one you're reading, and the title was something like you know billionaires, state capitalism, and space exploration, or something like that. And and really, that article uh, is as I was alluding to before is basically um, just one example I think of many where what some people look at as like you know entrepreneurism and free market sort of function is in reality when you look at what actually happened over the course of the 20th century a lot of the state sort of being the linchpin and the thing holding together academics scientific research private business people and of course their own mil- interest whether that be like political and nationalist interest or military interest and, and and so on so one of my first concerns to your point um about this sort of public private uh mixing is that we actually identify it um i think that uh credit sh- just as a point of principle credit should not go cr- where credit is not deserved for anything whether it's a paper that's been uh, uh plagiarized or somebody not uh you know making a note and saying, hey, I got that idea for, from someone else. You know, when you expand that principle up, I, I think uh, libertarians and people that are serious about free market economics, um, you know, sh- should not be so quick to just say something like, you know, it's, it's nominally, you know, it's by name, uh, you know, de jure in law, a quote unquote private organization. So therefore, that's a free market win. That's, that's the first thing. Um, so from just like a purely practical perspective, identifying it is something I'm concerned about. But also from a... Uh, 
you're saying you're talking about just the what's my overall concern with this stuff too it's like well when you look at you know from both an economic and political perspective when you mix together all these uh you know for example business interests political interests military interests so on like you know the space exploration article sort of really if you read between the lines a little bit underneath all that really then ask the question so so who's actually driving the bus here are we really um living with the sort of um, beautiful, like, you know, Hayekian emergent spontaneous order of many individuals doing very specific things. And we end up with these results that, you know, we couldn't have otherwise imagined that we could have ourselves designed. Or are we actually dealing with not only, and all libertarians can agree, not only troublesome legislators who are trying to, um, you know, regulate our lives and plan things we can all agree that those exist but is there also other classes that benefit from this system but not only benefit because here's another thing that a lot of libertarians agree on too you know and often the flippant answer is well if the subsidies weren't there people wouldn't be at the table if you look at the history of the way power works that's just not true people aren't just there for a handout they're also there for the sake of power as well to further their interests so there are people beyond legislators that are participating in driving a lot of the way uh, a lot of statecraft works, a lot of um, you know public spending works, a lot of the way the economy works overall, and who can do what and where. So I think that's really my concern about the uh, mix of the public and private interest. It's not only about the fact that maybe that money, you know, the basic libertarian point, which is totally true, by the way, that money could have probably been better off in my pocket instead of first taken and then done away. Like, you know, I'd be better off if I was saying where that would go. That's like a good fundamental point, And I'm always for that. But but beyond that as well, there's a broader uh, economic and, and point and point of freedom, which is when we look at ourselves as a quote unquote society or under living under a certain legal regime, who's really driving the bus here? I think when you look at stories of the mix of public and private interest, you don't just find stories of subsidy and people being weasels and rent seekers. You find stuff beyond that and about where the power and decision making truly lies in society. And who gets to make these decisions versus who just gets to work for other people, for example, or who gets to throw a vote in a ballot box every four years and call that democracy? These are these are the concerns. So that's the, that's why it concerns me that public private interest mix beyond the always true on the surface discussions of economic rent seeking and so on and so forth and public choice theory and all that great stuff. There's also a lot of not a lot of I should say at core. There's also discussion of power where it lies in society and who has the influence. And who's making decisions on behalf of other people that aren't the individuals themselves that should be living free to make more decisions for themselves. So I am going to go back to the space thing. You know me. I have to. I can't yeah, let it go. Yeah. Um, I'm a big Trekkie. I love yep. space exploration. Like not just science fiction, but like in real life. Um, I get really excited every time there's a new image that comes out. And, and I feel like we're expanding our knowledge of the universe. And as humans, I think that's really cool <laughs> and importance scientifically um and but just as a civilization mm-hmm. of humanity so um i mean is there a way we can maintain space exploration in a way that you might deem more liberal or acceptable to those who have concerns about state capitalism because i am also concerned about state capitalism but i also think space exploration is cool what would you say to me <laughs> well i mean i would say what like um a lot of people's answer is when they talk about any other industry which is that if this was truly done first of like i mean first of all we have to ask the question 
if this was truly done on a free on a free market uh, without state interference, uh, so on and so forth, or encouragement or whatever, um, would it have been? Would it actually be done? I think there's a lot in my article that I've referred to before, which we'll hopefully put in the episode notes. That I think starts at least I hope drawing doubts in people's heads, which is the scary part. Um, so, so you know, would this stuff be done on a free market or not? Uh, as I think the first question that's interesting to think about and talk about, and then the second is, um, you know, issue really is okay. If not, let's say we get everyone listening to this in a room and agree. You know what? You're right, Alex. If if there wasn't sort of like um, you know. Uh, state intervention and us living in sort of a, a large format state capitalist society, the kind of space exploration we would have today wouldn't exist. And same thing with the commercial jets flying around, flying us around to other countries, which is amazing unto itself. You know, maybe there's a couple of anarchists flying around on their own makeshift gyroplanes, but we wouldn't have sort of like the kind of innovation that we saw in the 20th Firefly. Century. Everybody yeah. watch Firefly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so, so let's say we say everybody agrees. You're right. Without some state nudging, budging, this just stuff wouldn't have happened. Um, to the degree it has or in the same way well then I, my answer to that and your question really is well first maybe it would happen in a different way we won't know because that's all been crowded out and nudged and budged a certain way and engineered a different way so maybe the same kind of things would happen just differently and then the second one answer the potential answer i should say that a lot of people aren't comfortable with but you have to get comfortable with it i think uh, if you're serious about free markets is sometimes stuff just doesn't happen on an actual free market um, people can't limit their liability. There's too much upfront costs for R&D. Uh, there's too much, uh, uh, not enough of a reward from the risks some people take on the market. It's too long term. Sometimes markets actually do fail, quote unquote, to produce certain results that a planner or a, a dreamer even might sit back and say, wouldn't this stuff be nice? And uh, that kind of ties back to a broader point that I think if you're a serious free marketeer, sometimes uh, accepting that some stuff won't be done on a free market um, is actually something that one has to live with. And it's not all good answers all the time. Uh, this, it's, it's neutral to start, like would this happen or not? But then we add our own value judgments for that. And I think a lot of people that are, uh, you know, call themselves classical liberals and libertarians, um, you know, should really think think about that as well. I, I think if they dig a little deep, they'll find that a lot of the things that they they very much enjoy, especially when it comes to computer innovation, space exploration, and so on, uh, might not be exactly the way it is now without the the kind of state capitalist infrastructure to sustain it. And then the question is, would I be okay without that? Or I, am I actually secretly for some state capitalism? <laughs> and I say that without sneering because I think it's a serious question. I, I don't mean to be a... A little, um, a little bugger about it. I think like it, people really should should think that way. And then if there is an argument for state capitalism or a little bit of state capitalism, um, then uh, let let's hear that. But let's at least be honest about what we're talking about. Hurts my little Gene Roddenberry loving heart, but okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, I know. I feel fine. I feel sorry for all the it's trackies. Fine. I just I, I just won't let it go. But I mean, but, uh... okay. So moving away from this conversation. Um, Finally, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on anarchism. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that not enough libertarians sort of talk about it openly enough. And like sometimes you're an anarchist, sometimes you're not. But you have thoughts on this. <laughs> and so I really I want you to, to talk about it. You describe yourself on Twitter as a left market anarchist. So that's public. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean? And what brought you to this? So let me start with the anarchism part of the left market anarchism. So, you know, um, anarchism is not unto its you know at its core uh 
being against the state. It's not wanting the state to go down. It's also not people chucking Molotov cocktails at each other. It's 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 not a lot of what it's perceived to be. But but it's also not just um, just a conclusion. You you get conclusions from a core uh, set of beliefs about uh, justice, a certain way of looking at things, and a certain uh, you know um, a certain sort of value systems and so on and so forth. So being anti-state, for example, is a conclusion you get if at, at core you're an anarchist. And what I really think, and that's just one conclusion I should say, of what where an anarchist might get to. I think what anarchism really is, is at its core uh, a philosophy and a set of values and a point of view and a sense of justice that is completely set against domination with no exception um it is at its core an anti-domination philosophy if you will whether it's uh, in economic circumstances social circumstances cultural circumstances anarchism um when someone's an anarchist they are against the idea that someone uh can impose um systems uh, or actions of control and domination over other people that's what anarchism is at core and when you go on from there that's how and we don't have time to cover all the steps here but you eventually get to why the state is fundamentally un, an unjust institution to many anarchists uh you 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 know and and through its various actions and and what why as an institution it's unjust you also get i i think through my own personal value judgment and bias if you're thinking of anarchism in in the in in the broadest possible sense as a set of values against domination, ultimately a philosophy of anti-domination. This is why you also get to conclusions um, about, you know, people in certain social standings being illegitimate. Like, you know, for instance, like uh, being against the patriarchy, for example, is, is, is fundamentally, I think if you're a serious feminist, I always say that like the, the end game of that is, is anarchy. You're basically saying just because someone is X, Y, and Z or has some feature, doesn't mean they deserve this social standing or should be able to control other people simply because they're a man, for example, in the case of the patriarchy. And we shouldn't organize society like that or, or have social uh, situations either at the individual level or at a broader cultural level um, where the arrangements are that men are effectively in, in charge, for example, just to simplify it down, down to the you know, very flippant basic. Um, so, so that's anarchism. Um, when you start attaching other things to anarchism – like uh, market anarchism, some people call themselves, you know, anarchist, socialist, whatever. Any hyphen or any compound that you put on top of anarchism, to me, the way I look at that is always if someone is truly an anarchist accord, like the way I see it, which is, you know, it, it's a set of values and a philosophy set against domination and ultimately, fundamentally, uh, an anti-domination point of view, um, then most of the time, if people are adding things to that market anarchist, anarchist socialist, anarchist communist, if the anti-domination is always there, the rest of it to me is just a flavor on how people think is best to achieve. That it, like what's what's the, what's the best way to achieve a situation, or what do you prefer uh, your flavor of anti-domination to be? Basically, like you know, and and when it comes to market anarchism, and I'm sure a communist, uh, an anarchist communist would say the same thing with just different fill in the blanks. Um, but basically, when it comes to market anarchism, I think that that is the best way to achieve a system of domination. So when it comes to the market part and left market anarchism, um, in the broadest sense, uh, what I want and what I think is ideal is truly people to live under free and freed markets. That essentially means people uh, without getting into property, which is a very tricky thing, which we're not getting into now. I'll just say people should have their own stuff 
and possessions. Other people don't have a right to uh, punch them in the face and take their stuff at the base level. And uh, what I should be able to do is choose what I want to do with my life, trade uh, who I want to trade with, um, work who I want to work with, set about on my own projects, associate who I want to associate with, and so on and so forth. So when I say I'm a market anarchist, I mean market in the broadest sense, the market for association, the market for ideas, the market for objects and trading with each other, so on and so forth. Um, and fi- and left, that's actually an easy one, although some people might think that'd be a hard one to get into. And I can simply say left and right are relative statements depending on what kind of political climate you're in and culture. Um, it's not that they say there aren't like generalities across different sort of uh, generalities across the board in the entire world. If someone's right wing or left wing, we kind of know what they're sort of getting at. But as far as I'm concerned, the left part's really a signal on my market anarchism. All that to say some people, um, especially in the, uh, um, some pockets, of the American libertarian movement, sometimes people, um, think of uh, people who you know want anarchy but also some form of capitalism some folks of this brand tend to have very personal conservative points of views many anarchists would say that's incompatible with anarchism but i'm not going to get into that today i'm just going to say that the left is actually mostly a signal that kind of helps orient you on what i feel about certain social issues uh and social arrangements cultural issues and so on and so forth so that's that's left market anarchism as the way I see it, but we're really is holding that all together is, is that anarchism. And I think anarchism at its core, as I said, is a philosophy of non-domination. It's against, uh, people imposing, uh, either individual to individual or institutions on individual or just, you know, cultural circumstance when it can be called out, even if it's something emergent order that could also be unjust too. Um, it's against, uh, instances, circumstances and situations of domination. That's, what holds everything together for me is, is that meaning of anarchism. So in one article you wrote for C4SS, you point out three fundamentals that anarchists should prioritize. Can you elaborate? Yeah. Um, and actually I'm going to, so there actually have a newer art that, that, that's a, that is a good art. I have a newer article out that sort of, I think summarizes a little better. So I'm going to answer your question. I think like, like differently, um, but it'll still get to like some similar fundamentals. Okay. So it, so uh, the main points I'm trying to make through some of my writing in C4SS, especially the newest essay I have out, is basically that what I just talked about, anarchism is fundamentally about, is fundamentally anti-domination. Uh, it, that's that's what holds the whole thing together. You're against domination if you're an anarchist. And in the uh, in one of my articles, um, it's titled uh, Domination, Hierarchy, Authority, Rules, uh, Justification, and the Burden of Proof. I kind of go into a little bit more detail what I mean by, by domination there. Um but once you get, so that's one thing about anarchism. That's, you don't go any farther unless you're anti-domination in the sense that I think I think is, is described well in that article. Um, but beyond that, as far as the fundamentals anarchists follow, it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, it it's also means anarchism should also be fundamentally about understanding what we mean by hierarchy and authority and, um, and also being able to, to recognize hierarchy and authority and when it's illegitimate. This is a little controversial because some people think will define hierarchy and authority a certain way and say it's um, always illegitimate. And in many of times where people uh, define hierarchy and authority a certain way, I also agree it will always be illegitimate. But if we, for instance, take a very simple example of a hierarchy, like when I'm on a soccer field, there's a referee who's in charge of the rules of the game. If I don't respect every call that they make kind of thing, Um, if we want the game to continue, we have to listen to the referee's calls sort of thing. That's like an authority on the field, if you will. Um, you know, this sounds sort of like I'm 
being patronizing or getting like too like into the core and root here, but I think it's very important to separate these things out. So that'd be an authority in the field. Uh, you know, if I join a group, uh, I've, I've actually been in this situation. If I join a band on my own voluntary basis and they just really needed a bassist and, uh, I join, I, I knowingly, for example, this is a true story, joined what I really viewed as someone else's group. Like they were the singer and the main guitarist. They were running the show and we were a five piece set and they just needed a bassist. There was clearly some sort of hierarchy going on there, but it was all voluntary. I didn't want to come in personally. I didn't even care about cooperating and being an equal partner on the project. I was just happy to jam. And, and these guys were really in charge. I accepted that sort of hierarchy. I didn't care when I didn't want to do the project anymore. I left not being dominated and held against my will. So when we understand, Anarchists should also understand what authority and hierarchy means in different senses and in different times and places and identify when that hierarchy and authority or a set of rules, for example, uh, fundamentally uh, comes from a source of uh, domination or creates a circumstance of domination where it's imposed, uh, you you didn't voluntarily enter it, you have no exit, so on and so forth, domination. so, so anarchists fundamentally, anarchists should also be able to recognize not only be ant- as I'll review again, not only be anti-domination, but understand hierarchy and authority and rules and when they are completely illegitimate, and then finally when they can recognize those and do point out when um, when when hierarchy and authority rules or so on and so forth um, have elements of domination in them or or are the result of domination, understand that those are illegitimate. Uh, unjustifiable because their domination and domination is inherently unjustifiable and then seek to have them dismantled. Um, sometimes things can be reformed. Other times they need to be destroyed and protested against, but that's really the anarchist fundamentals as I basically see them. Anarchism is a point of view. It's a set of values. It's set against domination. So it's a system of thought of non-domination. Anarchists need to reject all contexts and dynamics of domination, no exceptions. Beyond that, though, anarchists do need to identify arrangements and dynamics that are based on hierarchy, authority, and rules and bring challenges and critiques to them, however. But there always needs to be the idea you're detecting to see if there's domination there. If, if you know, hierarchy and authority are understood to me not always necessarily a domination. And, uh, and, and, and basically bring a call after kind of what I just said to dismantle the ones that are domination-ridden. You have to be against those hierarchies and authorities that, that are domination ridden i also think that anarchists um also really need to feel and understand that it's the proponents of the context and dynamics uh of hierarchy and authority and rules that need to actually justify them as being either domination or not um you know so for instance that lead singer in that band i joined and his guitarist could basically say look like we're in charge here but like no one's keeping you at your will there's nothing going on here we're not imposing anything you're free to leave at any time you're free to enter you're free to leave good for you okay well i would say they've justified their hierarchy good for you you're running the band i think you're being a wiener now and i'm leaving this actually happened it's a true story like i mean like that's not domination they had a hierarchy they had authority over the five piece set whatever so i'm not going to call that out and ask for that to be dismantled but they still need to justify it they need they need to be the ones in the story to be basically say like look like this is why it's justifiable we're running things like this you know if you don't like you can leave and you're not being dominated um but but um it's and why i'm saying this is because it's never the anarchist job to basically be the one to basically carry that whole case study through. Anarchists primarily need to be the ones that critique and bring challenge to these contexts and dynamics 
um, especially if they detect hierarchies and authorities or rules. Um, but the burden of proof and justification is not on them. Those are people on people running whatever show they're running. And if they can't, the people running the show can't show that they're doing it legitimately or without domination, then the call is to have that whatever's happening dismantled. It's never the burden of proof that's on the anarchists is, I think, a point that needs to emphasize why they should say, oh, well, you know, the state shouldn't exist and here's a elaborate question why. Well, if anarchism set against domination and it's established that the state is domination, then it's up to people that might be a proponent of the state to explain why it should be maintained and how, if at all, it could be maintained, for example, without dynamics of domination. That's the burden of proof on them. The anarchist is basically to say, no, we've detected domination. Hey, that's not ju- that's not justifiable if indeed it is domination. So basically justify yourself or you ought to be replaced by something better or completely dismantled. That's sort of, I think, what the anarchist sort of way of thinking about things is when it both comes to that core of domination as well as how that's actually applied and how they should think of the burden of proof. Yeah, I think that's a really good overview. And just to round out this, uh, our last section of our conversation, um, one quote that stuck with me from your first earlier article on this is, and I quote, if the only thing that you can do with a hammer is break things, then you don't know how to use it. And I, I really like that. Um, and I think it says a lot about what you've just said. So before we end our conversation completely, uh, I'm going to throw some rapid fire questions at you just so we can make sure that our audience uh, gets to know you a little bit better. Okay, you're ready? Sure. Okay. Okay. Let's but you got to answer quickly. Let's see what you got. You got to okay, answer quickly. Okay. 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 <laughs> Favorite book? Uh, that that's impossible. I can't answer that question. Uh, I can tell you about some really great favorites I've had recently, though, <laughs> that I have read. The two volume set, which I mentioned in our conversation, Morin J. Horowitz's Transformation American Law, one of my favorites of this year. Uh, I just finished reading Golden Rule by Thomas Ferguson, which is about the investment theory of politics and about how basically the, the gold drives the rules. So that's a really good one, too. Um, and there's also another book this year called Business as a System of Power, as, Business as a System of Power by Robert A. Brady. Um, that's another sort of discussion. Um, it's such a very good study. It's interesting. It's um, he looks at the way diff- sort of basically uh, business in the commercial class has power and influence in, in many different countries and so on and so forth. So those are some favorites. So that wasn't rapid fire, but I can't talk about my favorite book. Those are recent favorites that's that okay. I really liked. Favorite thinker. That's also another impossible one. I could you know, off the top of my head, I can talk about. The different kinds of people that have like influenced me. I mean, there's some standard, like very, you know, basic, if you will, liberal ones. Like I do love Adam Smith, um, you know, and uh, when I was really into like the specific people that you would definitely, definitely call liberals, like, you know, there was Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill were were very, um, very pivotal for me. Um, But then, you know, then as well, I moved on to, to reading other thinkers as well that, you know, when you bring in that kind of anarchist flavor. Um, you know, there's, there's like lots to name, you know, Emma Goldman's good. Um, there's just too many to name off the top of my head, you know, like I think like as a public intellectual, Noam Chomsky has been very influential to me, but I think he's very good for like pointing people to further questions and further reading. So I think like for, for what he does and, and how he goes about it, that he's been very influential on me as well. But it's one of those things that like, I think, um, like, uh, he sort of, has pointed the direction in a lot of ways for and, and and posed very interesting questions that I think I've taken and run with and done my own studies on. So he's been very influential in that way. And then last but not least, um, I blame Thomas Paine 
for pretty much all my interest <laughs> in anything to do with like sort of broader thinking on these issues. Uh, way, years ago, um, you know, that's not to say he was like the quote unquote best thinker, if that's possible category on a specific issue, the best writer, the most like, you know, philosophically studied or anything like that. But uh, when I first uh, he was one of the first people I actually read as far as like, you know, nonfiction, political related theory stuff um, and sort of like his passion and sense of justice uh, leapt off the page for me. Um, I think he's still the cover photo on my Twitter profile and that's just because he's always watching over it. And that's kind of the guy that started it all for me. So um, I have a whole mix of intellectual influences and I can't name some favorites, but um, it's really a mix of at the highest level. It really is a mix of some like really key, what we would call like liberal thinkers, some great anarchists um, and, uh, and then basically uh, that in a blender. But what started it all was Mr. Thomas Paine for me. So it's kind of a little overview of what's in my head, but certainly not an exhausted list. Favorite Canadian city? I haven't, like, that been to been enough. That you've been to. <laughs> yeah, that I've been to. Okay, I was going to say, I've been to enough to say, like, this is a Canadian city. I, I really do like Ottawa. It's lame to say. It's my hometown. Uh, I've lived here most of my life. Um, you know, so that kind of sounds it's like not it's lame. No, no, I mean, like, you know, when people answer that, it's all oh, the bread and butter, the hometown, but I really do like it. it it's, it's not too big. It's not too small. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's very beautiful. There's lots of green space. Uh, sometimes it gets too damn cold. Sometimes it gets too damn hot, but, but I really do like it. I feel like, um, there's some great, like on the edges, there's some great rural cottage mix stuff in it. And then, you know, you can have your downtown core and have some, uh, semblance of nightlife, although some disagree with that and trash Ottawa nightlife. You know, there's nightlife, there's restaurants, there's some world-renowned chefs here. You get all that kind of urban core, good old Jane Jacobs stuff, but you can also drive 15 minutes from my house and I can head on over to the uh, the shooting range and get that uh, going as well. So, you know, um, I do like Ottawa. It's a great mix of things here. Me too. Uh, favorite place you've ever been? Favorite place I've ever been? Mm-hmm. Oh, shucks. Um... That's another one. It's like, um, I, but what's always stayed with me is like when I went to Italy one time on a trip, uh, and I went to the town of Assisi and, uh, snuck out at night onto the roof of the hotel. And like, it was like the clearest night I've ever seen as far as stars concerned. And a, and a little shooting star did go by and I know oh, wow. it wasn't a satellite. I know for a fact it wasn't cause it's traced differently. Um, but anyway, like it was, it was just really <laughs> nice. Night. And, and that to me, I really felt something transcendental in that moment. I don't mean from a religious sense, but like, you know, even like in a secular sense, it's like when you go to an orchestra and you feel something greater than you kind of thing. Um, I felt that, uh, on, on a rooftop in a CC, whether or not that has anything to do with the fact I'm hundred percent on tally and on both sides by heritage, I don't know, but it there, that that always leaps into my brain. That's stuck in my brain as something that uh, I was really happy and really really uh, felt with you know at peace and calm with, and it was an interesting experience. Favorite food, as you know, that changes every day, and uh, we're always grabbing different things. Um, but uh, like, I mean, I you know, like the 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 default, like many people who aren't even Italian, is Italian food. I think anything from that pl- uh, sort of um, genre is is great um but i i can't narrow that down honestly really like i i i do i do find myself gravitating mostly towards uh japanese stuff and italian though often favorite beverage um i have a lot of them but i have to say i mean like you know like like i I do drink a lot of coca-cola so i mean like you know sometimes like a default drink for me so i mean i i do (laughs) i like a lot of things again and i wouldn't say it's my favorite but but if you were to uh 
if there's something that's pretty consistently in my life every week, it's Coca-Cola. Not Pepsi. <laughs> definitely not. Oh, Coke. gosh, no. Yeah, um, favorite movie? That's tough, too. Um, I'm really digging everything that's coming from the A24 production company slash, pub, um, what do you call it, like distribution company right now. Um, I think they're doing a really good job uh, sort of putting in front of people movies that don't cost $400 million to make, $400 million to make, uh, but, you know, they're sometimes between five and $20 million budgets, which isn't a lot these days, hilariously in comparison, but I think they're, they're really showing in my value judgment, what cinema is all about and the kind of thing you could do for those sorts of budgets. Like anything from that catalog right now is at the top of my mind as far as, um, as, as far as a favorite. One subject you would like to learn more about. Um, I'm going to choose something that I'm like not at all dabbling in. Cause you know, those who know me know I'm like into a couple different hobbies and dabbling is all those things I'm doing because I feel like I'm still on a journey, not because I know everything and I just go do it. So like that stuff I'm interested in, like for instance, firearms are very interesting to me now. Um, but, uh, like, you know, something that I have not touched at all and not studied all that I, if I ever made the time I would really like to get into is, is honestly like, like physics to some degree. <laughs> like, I think I have a friend who can talk off the top of his head about, uh, sort of like, like, you know, basically the way the world's working and why that's happening outside our door and like, you know, how it, how those kind of explanations when it comes to like the actual science behind, uh, you know, why, why, a, why a boulder's rolling down a hill, for example, like becomes very interesting when you know some basic physics. And I'm, I'm not very good at, at, at that kind of sphere of thinking. So if I ever get around to it, I really would like to dive into more of that kind of stuff or even just casual reading about it. Go to karaoke song. Oh, um, it have to. I get you know the first thing that pops in my head, although I've never karaoke, is just like Tom Sawyer by Rush. I mean, like, I'm okay, good, good answer. I'm a good, I'm a good Canadian progressive rock, like progressive metal guy, <laughs> among all the other things I like. So I mean, you can belt that one out and be looked at as a weirdo. Gotta take so you to karaoke, karaoke bar. You've never yeah. karaoke before. I gotta take you. Come on. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> one piece of advice you'd give your younger self? I, I feel. I, you know, from a certain age, I've always told myself to make sure I really enjoy things as they go. But no matter what, you're never doing that enough. So I would always revisit my younger self and basically say, first of all, yes, carry a sense of existential dread that you will die one day and make sure your life means something. That's a good sense of dread to carry for sure. I would confirm that with my younger self. So keep doing that, Alex. Keep being neurotic and weird like that. But but do remember that, you, you know, at the time, let's say I was like 21, like you're still 21, like calm down. You don't have to achieve everything or like, you know, get to all those projects, I should say, um, you know, within the next two years, for example, like, you know, so sort of that, keep that balance of sort of wanting to do different projects, wanting to learn more um, and a healthy idea of like our time is finite and get your ass in gear. But, but don't, don't dread on that too much. Like you're, you're still young is what I would always like to tell my younger self. Even if I'm 80 talking to myself at 75. That's nice. So those are all my rapid fire questions. Great answers. Not so rapid. Some of them, but that's okay. I'll let it go. Um, We've talked a lot. uh, We've talked a lot about many things and let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what classical liberalism means to you? You know, it's lame to say, but I think I hope it like, like in the broadest possible sense, uh, you know, even I'll take, I'll drop classical off liberalism for a second, just to say not to like kill the point of the, uh, the chat or the, the theme, if you will, but really to say that like, you know, 
um, everything I talked about today when it comes to liberalism, I think is the connects into what I think classical liberalism is worth, if anything, as far as preserving as a set of ideas and a way of looking at things. And I think it also ties into anarchism and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I covered like, you know, the three fundamentals of like a basic liberalism, I think important as far as, as far as like human dignity and taking each other seriously as equals and, you know, that quote unquote rule of law point and being skeptical of power uh, relations and, and so on and so forth. So I think like in the broadest sense, when it comes to like liberalism, that's what I want people to take away as far as what I think um, liberalism is. Um, but, but, but beyond that, I also think, uh, you know, liberalism is also, um, you know, um, in sort of a way carrying those fundamental values with you, but also thinking about what you can also contribute out there in the world. Um, I hope this podcast is some semblance of a quote unquote contribution. I always leave it to audiences and people outside of me to judge. Cause I don't want to be stuck around judging myself and saying, yes, you've achieved that. No, you haven't. But I really hope people also think that um, this is a contribution to liberalism as well. So it's kind of lame to say, but I think liberalism should be looked at as a very broad set of fundamentals and cornerstones, uh, both as values that drive um, your sense of morality. Um, and and if you want to jump from there to anarchism with me, just you know, email me if you want more information, if you're not there yet, because we're always willing to talk to, to convince other people. Uh, as far as Alex is concerned, um, but but yeah, no, it's 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 really like a, a broad set of fundamentals, but but also um, those broad fundamentals should also, I hope, drive a bit of a spirit of both contribution and ambition as far as getting involved in conversations and uh, wanting to make a positive change in the world. Thanks so much, Alex. I hope everybody enjoyed getting to know you better. I hope so too. Hope they don't hate me more now. For example, uh, I hope it was just a <laughs> sure nice, a, a nice, a nice fireside rather than a, what the heck's this guy on about. So thanks. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed my time uh, discussing everything with you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Sabine. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.